This morning we conclude the series on the driven life. I kind of chuckled the other day when I realized that as it worked out, Pastor Kevin asked me to do Purpose 1 and Purpose 5, which is kind of like the bookends. So I'm just sort of the bookends, and he gave you all the stuff in between. But uh, hopefully we can sort of wrap it up together today. Three passages we'll be looking at. A few verses from Ephesians, and then a parable from Matthew, and some words from the end of Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with Ephesians, the second chapter, reading verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then a familiar parable from Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning to read at verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. <clears throat> then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. The man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> and then from the end of Matthew's Gospel, the 28th chapter, the Great Commission, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, 
to the very end of the age. <clears throat> to begin with, I want you to consider these pictures. Picture number one. How many of you know what that is? Eh, that's a Hummer. Came to fame and design because of Desert Storm. Well, now picture it on the track at the Brickyard in Indianapolis, ready for the race. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Hummers aren't made to race. It's not going to do very well. Picture number two. Now, I've got to take a time out here. I have to tell you, a few weeks ago I had the privilege of uh, speaking at a father-son's retreat, and I, I showed this picture and a young boy sitting on my left saw that picture and his jaw dropped and he said, that just isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the sermon. Sumo wrestler, probably around 350 pounds. Now, picture him with his feet in the starting blocks, crouched over on the track, ready to run. That just isn't right. That just isn't right. <laughs> it isn't going to happen. What's wrong with these pictures? Something can only be what it is meant to be when it does what it is designed to do. Something can only be what it is meant to be when it does what it's designed to do. And that's why today we begin with the fact that God has given us a map for life. There's several things in this map. The first thing is that we are designed. Pastor Kevin mentioned that a little bit, especially last week. We are designed. God made us with a design with a plan in mind. Now, no builder begins construction without some blueprints. An artist doesn't begin to paint without an image in mind. A chef doesn't begin without some kind of recipe or food in mind. So God did not create us without a design. David said it beautifully in Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. Knit them together. I love that term. Knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. Paul picked up on that and wrote in Ephesians 2.10, We are God's workmanship. Pastor Kevin again mentioned that last week, but let me tell you about that word, workmanship. It literally means his poem, his masterpiece, his display case, his crowning work of art. You and I are his crowning works of art. In the first nine verses of the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul has traced our history. He said we were sinners and then through Christ we were brought near to God and he's made us new and recreated us so we can be as he designed us to be. So Paul continues, we are God's workmanship, his piece of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are designed to do good works. We are designed for, created, made for, exist to do good works. That's our purpose in life. To do good deeds, to carry out tasks, 
to go to places to make decisions that honor God. And Paul is very clear. Our salvation is not the result of us doing these good works. Rather, our good works are the result of the fact that we have been saved. We don't do the deeds. We don't carry out our tasks. We don't live with qualities. We don't go to places. We don't make decisions to honor God so that we can be saved. We do them because He's already saved us through His grace. And He's prepared things for us to do. But now, how do we know what's a good work? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism actually gives us some information. It says that there are three qualities, three criteria of good works. Number one, it must be done out of true faith. Is what I'm about to do, is what I'm seeing, something I can respond to as part of my faith. Number two, it must be in accordance with the law of God. Is it something that God would approve of? Is it something that God could say, well done to? And thirdly, it must be done to honor God, not to raise up ourselves. Is it something I'm going to do so that I can be noticed, or something I'm going to do so that God can be noticed? Our motives must be pure. And what Paul says is that these works God has prepared in advance, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has already prepared the works. It's like a puzzle. He's, he's made the pieces. Here's the good works and here's us and we can fit together neatly. God matches the works to us and us to the works. Think about the miracle of birds being able to fly. They can only fly because when God created the world, he had birds in mind and he created the atmosphere in such a way that birds could fly. So when a bird comes, it finds out it can fly. They fit together in the same way God has created the works for us to do and we can do the works and we fit together. And what that means is you are compatible with your surroundings and your circumstances. The translation literally is God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. And what is significant is that the Heidelberg Catechism, after giving that criteria for what is a good work, goes in to delineate the Ten Commandments. How do we walk in good works? We love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we reflect God's glory. What it means is there are opportunities for good works around each and every one of us. No matter our age, our status, our location, there are opportunities for good works. Whatever your circumstances, God has fitted you to make the contribution that is needed there at that place at that time. God has created us. He has given us a map to do good works. But it's easy for us to say, what do I have to give? Well, God has also given us a means by which we can do those good works. That's why I'm using Matthew 25 and the parable. It's it's one of Jesus' last major teachings before he went to the cross, before the Holy Week events. We know it as the parable of the talents. And being one of the last teachings he gave, certainly it must have had some priority for him. But it's a frustrating parable. So let's begin where Jesus began. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey 
who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. The context is that in those days when a property or an estate owner was going to be gone for a long period of time, he would call one or two or three of his trusted servants and give them everything and say, it's all under your care and your charge. Take care of it until I return. Manage it for me. All of his property and assets. So we automatically assume then that this parable is about the servants and the property. In fact, it's called the parable of the talents. But note that the parable begins and ends with the master. So just maybe the parable is saying something about the master. Maybe, since Jesus is telling the story, we quickly realize he's saying something about himself and God. This parable is about God, not us. It's a story or a lesson about what God is like. Consider the third servant and his response to the master's return. I knew you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. So here is what belongs to you. Our view of God determines how we act. The servant's feelings about his master determine how he acted. And so I ask you this morning, what is your view of God? What do you think about God? Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 95. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. God is our maker. He is our designer. He is our fashioner. It's important that we know him and that that we are connected to him. Think of it this way. Some people buy clothes only from a certain designer. They like the fashion. They like the name. They, They like that label on their clothes. What's the label of your life say? To whom does it point? It's essential to understand and answer that because God has put his label on us and we are shaped for God's service. So what is your view of God? Jesus continued, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Now the focus does shift to his property. And it serves as a reminder that God owns everything. Everything we see, taste, touch, feel, smell belongs to him. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 104, the earth is full of your creatures. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. He's not only our designer, but he's the owner of everything. He has ownership of us, and we belong to him, and everything we possess belongs to him. So how wonderful it is to know that God is generous. Notice that the Master gives all his property That means everything 
the keys to the Cadillac and to the house, the rights to the swimming pool, tickets to the football, to the soccer games, access to all the bank accounts. God gives all things and everything and trusts us to be faithful and diligent in managing them. So Jesus said, the master gave out talents. Now the word talent originally meant a measure of weight and later came to mean a fixed sum, which is what our current translation in the NIV had. For now, it's enough to realize that the immensity of the sum is meant to remind us of the preciousness and extravagance of what God has entrusted to us. The gold that's mentioned in the parable is estimated to be five years' worth of wages in one single talent. It's an immense sum that God has entrusted to us. He's extravagant when he gives. And the talent represents whatever it is God has given to you. Time, talent, money, possessions, abilities, relationships, salvation, your faith, your reputation, your ability, your spiritual gifts, your abundant life, your spirit-filled souls, bodies that house His Holy Spirit, and the list goes on and on. That's just enough to get the wheels turning. The point is this. God gives us the opportunity to be faithful stewards and managers of everything he gives to us. So Peter in 1 Peter 4.10 urges each one should use whatever gift, talent he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with all the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Paul picked it up in 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So here's a question. Why did God reward the servants who risked his talents and punished the one who tried to protect it? I think it's because God is a risk taker. Matthew relates this story again at the end of his gospel, just before he records the crucifixion. Jesus was announcing that he was going to leave the earth and everything he had, everything he was, would belong to them and belong to us. That's what Pentecost was all about. He came back again and gave them everything to carry out his mission in the world. Everything that God is, everything that is known about him, is dependent upon us. In other words, God puts himself at risk He makes himself vulnerable to our behavior. Can you think of any greater risk than for God to stake his reputation on me? And before you laugh too hard, he staked it on you as well. This generous, empowering, risk-taking owner gives us a great opportunity, the opportunity to be like God. But then he leaves us free to do with it what we will. He doesn't say, do this, do that, go there, go here, invest here or there. God's not a micromanager. He loves us enough to give us the freedom to respond to his generosity. Even the third servant who had the least had a great deal with which to work. 
to be fully alive is to be as extravagant and reckless in responding to grace as Jesus was in showing grace. In fact, it's really the only way to experience the abundant life Jesus came to bring. But here's the key. Why does God operate this way? Why does he take such a risk? Come and share your master's happiness. God gives and operates this way and takes such a risk because he wants to enter wants us to enter into joy. He doesn't want us just to be happy. He wants us to share his happiness. He doesn't want us to have moments of joy. He wants us to enter into a state of joy. Here's the difference. I can take my bottle of water and take a drink. And I've experienced some water. After we're done here, we can drive back to South Haven and I can dive in the lake and be totally submersed and really experience water. God wants us to enter into, to be totally submerged in his joy. So as I think about this parable, the issue perhaps is not how could God react this way to the servant who protected the talents. Maybe the issue is how could that servant react that way to a gracious God. I believe that Jesus is not as concerned with the results of our efforts as he is with the efforts themselves. After all, he risked everything, everything on us. And he's given us the means to do the good works that he has prepared. But then, just to be sure that we catch the importance of this missional lifestyle, Jesus has also given us a mandate. Matthew 28. He came and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't say, Build it and they will come. He didn't tell us to wait until people come through the doors and enter our churches before we care about them. He said, Go! 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 Just for kicks, I looked up in an English dictionary the meaning of the word go. Here's the phrases it used. Move in a specified direction or manner. Change position. Walk. Proceed. Progress. Advance. Pass. Budge. Stir. Shift. Change position. Make a move. And I love the last word. Locomote. <laughs> In other words, get up off of your... Some of you thought I was going to say something else. Get up off of your pew. Get out of your seat. Get out of your car. Go. Go. Don't wait for those who are in need of good works to come. Go and meet their needs. In other words, develop a great burden for going and sharing Jesus. The great evangelist Dwight O. Moody was walking down a Chicago street, went up to a total stranger, and he said, Sir, are you a Christian? 
man looked at Moody angrily and he said, you mind your own business. Moody said, this is my business. We must make mission and evangelism and the presence of Christ our business. So here's the question to ponder today. Is there anything you will not leave for Jesus? Is there anything you will not leave for Jesus? Asian Access is a Christian ministry agency in South Asia. It's an area that is predominantly Hindu. So believers need to be aware of what they're doing when they say that they want to be baptized. And so church planters there have developed a series of seven questions that they ask each person who says, I believe in Jesus and I want to be baptized. Here's what the questions are. Number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Number two, are you willing to lose your job? Number three, are you willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Number five, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Six, are you willing to go to prison? Seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? What would your answers be? And understand that if the new converts say yes to these questions, they are asked to sign a sheet of paper, a document which says, I have done this of my own free will, I was not coerced to do so. But here's the risk. If a new convert is caught, it's automatically three years in prison, and the person who evangelized them gets six years in prison. So I ask you again, would you sign on the dotted line? Would you evangelize? Would you be engaged in mission? Do you really believe what we sang so beautifully a while ago? You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. We are made for mission. We're not showcases or trophies to be displayed or admired. We are works of art to bring others into the presence of God. Our challenge is, I believe, to live out the slogan of a Kansas City church that they used years ago. It goes like this. Wake up, sing up, preach up, pray up, and pay up, and never give up or let up or back up or shut up until the cause of Christ in this church and in the world is built up. That's our task. It's what we've been created to do. To that end, I invite you this morning to share in unison along with me as I pray. The words will be on the screen. Let's pray together. Lord, I put myself fully into your hands. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to doing Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things 
let me have nothing. I freely and with a willing heart yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. May this covenant I have made on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen.